I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Des Bishop Podcast. No one man should have all that power. Can't get that line out of my head this week. And this may sort of be a theme of this week's podcast. Because uh, I've been thinking a lot about Kanye West and Vladimir Putin. And uh, I'm, not gonna, I'm not repeating last week's episode. I'm more interested in power and how Kanye was correct. No one man should have all that power. Uh, This episode is a little bit inspired by my cousin Bella, who actually lives in my house now in Dublin and uh, is constantly giving me the Gen Z perspective on things. Uh, But she mentioned to me yesterday about the psychologically debilitating effects of power or essentially that power can cause brain damage which then caused me to look into power a little bit and um uh, can i just say that this is not in any way shape or form going to be an expert analysis on power uh i have very limited uh, experiences with studying power or the different types of power when I was in college, I am not qualified to speak about power in any um, broad way, uh, but I just wanted to have a bit of fun with uh, pretty obvious effects of power that we're experiencing, but also in the context of looking at uh, Kanye West's mental demise, which I will not be... Uh, uh, using for uh, any quick jokes or anything. But uh, needless to say, power was in my mind. And uh, we're going to chat about that. But before we get into it, can I just say that the Mia Mama tour continues? Great show in Klain last night. I mean, the something clicked. I don't know. Because it was a little chaotic. Klain... My shows in Klain always, uh, they always kind of have an energy. I don't know why. Who can say what it is about Klain? Of course, last night, because, you know, I'm doing two halves in the show. I'm doing like the first half, which is just like COVID post-pandemic material, vaccine jokes and lockdown jokes, and essentially just topical material from the last two years of what we went through. And I do that as like a warm-up half. Uh, and then the second half is me and Mama, as essentially was written in sort of late 2019, early 2020. And I walked out last night for that opening half, and whoo, it was rowdy, man. It was rowdy. And for the first half, that energy was great, you know? It was kind of like a little drunk. And... I don't know what it is about Klain, which I, so I, sorry, I, I joked, that's what I was saying. I joked about that with the crowd. I was like, what is it about the showing Klain? It's always like rowdy and high energy. And somebody in the front row shouted, that's because we're all from Tala, right? And uh, for our non-American listeners, or sorry, for our non-Irish listeners, American, Canadian, Australian listeners, British listeners, you might not be aware of why that would be funny, but uh you know, Tala, even in the whole island of Ireland, Tala is like quite a famous neighborhood. You know, I guess that might have a, a little bit of an association with being like tough, you know. Um, but it's actually a huge area, huge population. And uh, so, you know, it 
you, you can get a lot of people from Tala at a show that's only, you know, 10 miles from Tala. Uh, I don't think that's the reason why it was rowdy, but it was good fun. And uh, it'll give you an idea of uh, the vibe we were setting. Uh, and it was raucous. A lot of interaction from the front row, particularly. Uh, and I was uh, I was worried that that energy, which was so conducive to a boisterous and exciting first half, might uh, lead us to have a problematic second half. How can we convert this intensity of interaction into a... Uh, somber open to dark humor um uh, audience that's ready to uh be patient for the laughs to come in a show that is about death uh which by the way is the thinking that i had because you know i haven't tested the show that often in front of very drunk crowds uh, or or certainly these high-energy crowds. But I had a theory in my mind, which is this could go either way. This could go really bad, and they, the concentration levels aren't there for the type of show that Mia Mama is, or the opposite, that the level of intoxication means that the audience will be more open to laughing at jokes about difficult subject matter will be less inclined to be taken aback by some of the more inappropriate dark humor jokes. I mean, there's there's a couple of very deliberate jokes that are kind of, I guess you would say, shocking or certainly uh, not areas that are normally covered in stand-up comedy. Um, and they're, they're black. They're deliberately, you know, very dark jokes uh, and quite shocking. Uh, and and they're there for effect at a certain time in the show. Uh, sometimes they come after particularly emotional moments, so they're unexpected. Needless to say, uh, my theory was that perhaps the drunken audience will be more open to that. And the show goes best when those jokes are appreciated for what they are. It keeps the energy moving along, and it allows... Uh, no long gaps of laughter. It, it allows the show to never sort of get stuck in the in the mud of emotion, sentimentality. Uh, and there is, trust me, this show is not afraid to be sentimental. I've always resented this resistance to sentimentality in art, you know, particularly amongst the critics. Uh, they will always drop, uh, it was sentimental as if that is some sort of critique you know, which I feel is in some way more of a testimony to the uh, detachment that the critic likes to claim is a benefit to their craft. But I really think it's evidence of the type of person that might be drawn to criticism. Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps they're in denial about parts of themselves. So sentimentality is... Uh, is uh, too much of a window into their own soul. So therefore they have created a propaganda campaign over centuries that somehow uh, something being sentimental is a negative, uh, lest they should feel a fucking feeling, you know? But anyway, listen, that's, uh, that's, that's going back to a few instances. <laughs> that I've had over the years of, of critics uh, trying to hit me over the head with the fucking bat of the too sentimental critique um, or earnest. I love when they say that, too earnest, you know? It's like, well, why don't you try fucking earnest? Why don't you try to fucking, you know, turn one bit of your fucking life into art instead of hiding behind the criticism of others, you know? If, if, if ever there was a critique of the internet, or if ever we wanted to talk about the worst part of the internet, it's that it turned most of the world into critics, you know? It turned most of the world uh, into people that would have the ability to hide from their own inadequacies by tearing down others. 
turn that mirror back on yourself. And if at least you can't appreciate the sentimentality of others, take a quiet moment when no one's looking and you're not worried about being judged the way that you judge others. Just fucking have a sentimental moment for yourself and shed a tear for what you wish that you could be. But hey, listen, let me not get into it. I don't want to I don't want to get negative. <laughs> Guys, this is a joke. Okay? I'm joking. I'm just joking. So, um anyway, uh so the show was uh yeah, so the drunkenness uh allows that veneer or that facade perhaps to drop and you're open to the sentimental nature of the show or certainly emotional moments the the earnest moments of uh emotional exploration in the show of death and loss resentment uh healing life coming full circle not being afraid to be honest not being afraid to not pretend that uh you know the mother son relationship has to be perfect all the time all you know maybe the drunkenness actually creates a safer space to let it out that people might be like yeah i wasn't happy with some things in my own childhood too yeah it's okay anyway that was my theory this is a that was a very long-winded way of saying that i had a theory that it could go bad or it could go good because of the things that I was just saying. But I was nervous at the break, sitting up in the hotel room in the West Grove Hotel in Clean. I was nervous. I was tired from my jet lag, having gone back to New York for four days to bridge the gap, uh, to, to not have it be months uh, without seeing my fiance, without having it just be three months apart, and then 13 days until we get married. So I went back to New York to to see her. So I flew back yesterday morning with that tiredness in me and the, the usual sort of upset stomach from the body trying to adjust to this time machine leaping time zone travel. Uh, I sat there at the break with the fear that you always fear about a show, but the added fear of doing this kind of high level you know I, I don't ask me why i guess it's generational but i always think about greg luganus and I, i'm not suggesting that my comedy is in any way close to the level of dedication that greg luganus put into his diving back in the 1980s but for americans certainly people that lived their childhood in america at the time that i did it's a very memorable sporting moment when Greg Luganus whacked his head off the platform in, uh, I think, the 1988 Olympics. Potentially 1984. Uh, a smarter man would, would, have, would have had that information to hand. But uh, I, I don't uh, remember. I didn't know I was going to talk about Greg Luganus. Um I, I know he was in the 88 and 84 Olympics, so um, I, I, I just, uh, God, I should have, I should have done it. I should have Googled this faster. Anyway, I, I was looking it up quick there, but I haven't been able to find when he hit his head. I'm going to say 88. If I'm wrong, you can all send me a message and say you were wrong. But because I remember it so vividly, I think I'm going to say 88. I think... I think my memory is uh, more locked in the 12-year-old brain uh, than the 8-year-old brain of the 1984 Olympics. Um, so I always think about Greg Luganis and why him hitting his head uh, proved that the level of difficulty, the increase in inherent risk, you know, there's risk-reward and he was trying something difficult, and he made a mistake, but he did recover, I believe, to win a gold in that one. Uh, but needless to say, there was an element of me and Mama having the ability to hit your head on the platform. It is a show that has the potential for a disaster. It is a show that has a potential for the audience to 
mentally retreat, not to walk out, but but to to tap out, to think that this isn't funny or that this this is not the type of subject matter that's entertaining. You know? And you know, luckily you have another show. Greg Luganis had another chance to dive. But it's never nice to hit your head on the platform, and it's never nice to be up there and know that the show is not great. Uh, and Mia Mama increases the uh, potential for that to happen. So I was never feeling the spiritual presence of Greg Luganis's head in my soul as much as I was last night sitting in room 125 of the West Grove, West Grove Hotel in Clean, in between shows, tired, drinking a Red Bull, trying to inject energy into my body, into my weary groin as I got ready for my second half costume change. And, and I very quickly knew that, in fact, this audience was so right for the show and that despite my show literally being a study in the damaging effects of alcoholism, the generational trauma that can be associated with the collateral damage of alcoholism and its offspring, despite my show literally being probably the most negative, uh, subtle, by the way, subtle uh, treatise on how alcohol can affect generations, I have to say that the slightly more intoxicated audience of Klein last night was the best audience I've ever had for Mia Mama. And if, if ever that isn't the paradox, uh, and, and also, by the way, evidence of my position on alcohol, which is I really am not against alcohol at all, and I feel that in its proper use, it can... It can be great. I, I, I'm, I'm more than content with society's reliance on alcohol as a social elixir, uh, as a ceremonial, uh, you know, a ceremonial juice, uh, a connector. Uh, I'm happy with it. And, and I, I have to say last night, I, I couldn't have been more grateful for its presence because it took the energy to the level I always thought me and mama could achieve. Uh, a celebration of life and death without any of the hang-ups associated with what's appropriate or not. Appropriateness. My enemy. What is appropriate? That fucking term, inappropriate, it drives me crazy. I knew I wouldn't be able to... I wouldn't be able to keep away the ghost of the critic. Because you don't even know what I'm talking about yet, but... That word inappropriate immediately came into my mind just earlier in this conversation, which I had no idea I was going to have. Because back in 2010, when I did My Dad Was Nearly James Bond uh, at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, uh, it was going exceptionally well. Uh, Standing ovations every night. And it was the first time that I really had like a hit in Edinburgh. And every night my dad would get on stage and every night the audience would rise. And it was just a, it was a special moment for my family. It was a great show. It was everything about it just came together and got a five-star review in the Guardian, which is, you know, they're, they're, they're a rare occurrence. And and back then, especially, I think things have changed now, but in 2010, a five-star review in the Guardian, it was just a game changer. You know, it was a fucking game changer. I couldn't believe it. I didn't even know that I was getting a review that day. I just bought, I, I, I remember distinctly, because my parents were obviously with me, and myself and my mom, we went to Tesco uh, in uh, Edinburgh, Newtown, sort of just beyond the uh, Broughton Street roundabout. If you know Edinburgh, beautiful Gothic city, I had uh, driven my car across on the ferry to have the car, because my father wasn't that mobile at the time. And uh, myself and my mother drove to Tesco. She wanted to do some shopping. I couldn't handle shopping with my mother because, you know, it's just it's just easier for her to do it on her own. Uh, so I said, Ma, you, you do the shopping and I'll wait for you in the car. And I picked up a Guardian to read. 
I wasn't even picking up a fucking Guardian to see if I had written a review. I didn't even know that he was in on the Thursday night, which, by the way, is just luck. Because that Thursday night, coincidentally enough, just like last night in Clane, was like the night. That fucking Thursday, the night that Daniel Kitson was in, you know, like colleague of mine who I just wanted to impress appear that I wanted to impress. He was there that night. I knew he was there. I didn't know the Guardian guy was there. You know, Daniel Kitchen was there that night that it all just fucking came together like perfectly. It was a Thursday. I remember it well. Fucking just like, damn, that was a good show. You know, that was that was it. That was what this show was meant to be. Just like last night. The laughs were bigger when they were supposed to laugh. The emotion was stronger when they were supposed to be emotional. And all the freedom that that gives you to really perform it at its best. You, know, you really, you really get, you, you end up getting deep into crowd dynamics and, and, and performance, but comedy particularly, it's just, there's nothing you can do. Just audience dynamics will make a show better or worse. And on those nights where the audience carry you through the potential pitfalls, the times where the show can lose momentum, if that audience can carry you through those pits, the, if the show goes to another level. And it went to another level that night, that fucking night that The Guardian was in. And that's, the, if ever that, that was a testimony to the random nature of the entertainment industry. You get the right people on the right night, you never know what'll happen. It was that night for us, you know, in that special show. My dad was in a James Bond. He was in there. Uh, Logan, I think was his name, that, that, that critic who, you know, at that time was, uh, uh, you know, Brian Logan. God, he, he gave out five stars very rarely. The year before, The Pajama Men, the year or two before, The Pajama Men, another great comedy duo that I absolutely adore, was on before me at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And, you know, Edinburgh Fringe, 15-minute turnovers to turnarounds, right? So when you come to do your show, the guys that were on before you are in the dressing room with you. You know, it's very quick. So it's like every night, hey guys, you know, uh, and how's the show, blah, blah, blah. And I remember buying The Guardian the year before or the two years before. I can't remember exactly. Was it 08 or 09? But bought The Guardian to read. Of course, when you're at the Edinburgh Fringe, you're, you're kind of like engrossed in Edinburgh. So of course you're, you're inclined to go to that Edinburgh pullout section or the, you know, the, the, the arts pullout section and uh, boom. There it was, five stars from the fucking Guardian. I couldn't believe the Pajama Men got it because it was so rare. So rare, five stars from the Guardian. So much so that on my way to the show that night in 2009 or 2008, I bought a bottle of champagne. And I remember walking backstage and, you know, they were there and uh, I, I didn't say anything. I had it hidden in my jacket and I was like, uh, how's it going? They were like, good, good. Yeah. I was like, you know, how was the show? Good, good. Anything going on? And they were like, well, actually, we got we got a great review. And I whipped out the bottle of champagne. And I was like, I know you got a great review. Five fucking stars in the Guardian. Five fucking stars. You know, we were like jumping around being silly. You know what I mean? But like, that's that was, it was a fucking big deal. Yeah, five stars in the Guardian. You know? So I remember a Tesco parking lot. You know? keeping a, a safe distance from my mom. If ever that wasn't, it's, it's funny, this whole thing, every, every, everything, it, everything's connected in this fucking podcast. I haven't even meant it. It's all connected. It's all coming back together. I'm sitting there helping my mom, but keeping a safe distance in the car while she's doing her thing. I buy the fucking Guardian and uh, I'm reading it. I'm not even paying attention. And again, Edinburgh focused. I, I go to the Edinburgh pullout or whatever part of this, the paper at that time. It always changes, but at that time. And there I see my dad was in a James Bond. I, I, I had to take a fucking double take. Fucking five stars. I, I mean, when I gave that bottle of champagne to the pajama men, I never thought that I could also be that guy. You know? I never thought. And this is the, the sad fucking hypocrisy of this whole fucking podcast is my disdain for the critic but yet my love for their love for me the whole thing it's all fucking complicated this human condition huh 
And you're ratting yourself out on your own fucking podcast. Your own stream of consciousness brings you right back to your own fucking hypocrisy. But by Christ, that fucking five stars. I never thought I was that guy. The validation. The desperate validation at the heart of the insecurity of every performer. The desire for it. Well, I was so fucking excited. I ran into that Tesco. I ran right through the fake barrier that I'd created for myself. Right back to the source of all my pain. Looking for the real validation. What fucking aisle she was in, I don't know. By the cereal or by the fruit. I can't remember, but I ran back into that fucking Tesco. Bouncing up and down. We got five fucking stars in the car. Oh, my God. I couldn't wait to get back to the apartment tell my dad. Five fucking stars. And that was it then. We added dates. Absolute fucking takeoff. You know? Uh, but then, I think it was a day later. Because I'm pretty sure that was the Saturday Guardian. The Sunday Times. Oh, don't quote me on this because I... Not exactly sure I'm getting my days right. This was a long time ago. But this other fucking critic, I can't remember his name. Two stars in in the Sunday Times. Two stars. Uh, coincidentally enough, in a compilation of reviews that were focused on the fact that there was numerous shows about people's relationships with their fathers. So it was like a dad special. Um, uh, Russell Kane had a show about his dad that year. And uh, Greg Davies also had a show about his dad that year. There was one or two others. I can't remember the others. But uh, it was included with those two. And uh, two stars for my dad was Nearly James Bond. A show that The Guardian had given five. Two stars from The Sunday Times. Uh but here's here's why it's problematic. Um, the review was actually close to a rave review, uh, and then it said, "But here's the problem." Something. This is not a direct quote, but it'll be close to it. Here's the problem, or here's why I have so much difficulty with this review, or some like very odd line about like, here's here's the tough part about this review that I've just been the this show that I've been raving about. He goes, this show would have gotten at least three stars. So, so actually, this show is minimum three stars in my mind, except for the surprise ending, which I thought was inappropriate. Inappropriate. Not appropriate. And the surprise ending that he's talking about is that the man who the show is about, who is dying from stage four small cell lung cancer, who gave up his acting career for his children to have a stable life in New York, this hero who once got looked at not that seriously, but did actually have a meeting about potentially being James Bond for On Her Majesty's Secret Service. This person who the whole fucking show is about comes on stage surprisingly at the end to have a fucking curtain call on his life. His life as a father, as a human. You know, the things that he suffered as a child, that he comes on stage and gets a fucking bow, a standing ovation every single night in Edinburgh. This critic thought that was inappropriate. Inappropriate. That literally one of the biggest talking points of the Edinburgh Fringe 2010 was inappropriate. This guy. That is why I hate the term appropriate. Uh, and that is why the entertainment industry is so random because the Guardian guy gives it five stars and I have to say, really made our Edinburgh run take off ticket sales wise. But 
that Sunday Times guy thought it was inappropriate, this explosion of sentimentality at the end, this fucking comedic tour de force, as the Guardian guy said. Do you know what the Guardian guy's last line was? Like diamonds, this show is forever. He got it. Because it fucking hit him in the soul. But he was there on that fucking special night. The fucking Sunday Times guy, there's something in him. You got to think he had a difficult relationship with his father. None of my fucking business, right? But it fucking hit him. Because let's get a little deeper. He didn't just say it was inappropriate. He admitted that he was punishing me with stars. Right back to childhood. Gold stars for praise. Gold stars for validation. I would have given this show at least three stars, potentially more, except for the thing that caused a standing ovation, which I guess in his mind was some sort of gimmick, or perhaps he wasn't ready to look at the reality of imminent death. A man with not a lot of hair in his head, perhaps that was just too much for him. So he took one of my stars away. I don't know what kind of relationship he had with his father, but I guarantee you, it wasn't very affectionate. It wasn't very intimate, and it probably had a lot to do with performance-based praise. And he was quite happy to take my star away from my magic moment with my father. Perhaps he was hurt. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. All I'm saying is, that's why I hate the term inappropriate, but that's why I am not afraid to throw the fucking sentimentality right out there because I don't give a fuck about how sometimes this cold indifference gets more artistic praise. No, I'm going to throw it in your fucking face. We're all going to die, and it hurts like fuck when people disappear. So anyway, I had absolutely no idea that we'd be getting into this. Well, I brought that five-star back to my dad, and uh, that was a special moment, thank God. But like I said, life is random. It turns out that the Sunday Times critic guy was on the panel for the Perrier Award, you know, the number one award. Um, and on the morning of the announcements of the nominations, the head of the Perrier Committee was in the all the papers in a press conference and named my show not as a nominee, but just as one of the shows that had a lot of buzz. And you would have to say that when the head of the Perrier Committee mentions your show in an interview, above all the other shows, she mentions your show, the assumption was that we were going to get a nomination. We didn't. And I'm pretty sure that motherfucker, whose name I now remember, but I'm not going to say, probably uh, had a bit of a hand in it because he was in punishing me mode. But again, this doesn't come from a bitter place. This comes from the point of luck and bad luck and just show dynamics being special on certain nights, but needless to say, we didn't get nominated, which, you know, really doesn't matter, uh, but we didn't get nominated. Uh, and actually, Russell Kane's show won that year, which was a great show, and he's a great guy, and perhaps there wasn't enough room for two dad shows um, that year, but uh, I, I was quite happy with the, uh, a touch of outrage uh, amongst the small, insular Edinburgh community that year that I was robbed. But that is also life. You can't hold on to that. You just hold on to the memory that you did a special show. And it always felt special, that show. And I'll never forget it as long as I live. But last night, me and Mama felt pretty similar. Uh, it was a special night. Will we be able to keep that energy going every night? I don't know. I didn't keep it going every night in Edinburgh. Every night the show was good, but it wasn't always amazing like it was that Thursday night when Brian Logan was in and Daniel Kitson was in. Um, but we'll do it again tonight. That's the other crazy thing about fucking entertainment. You just do it again. And there's actually, in a way, not nothing worse. I was going to say there's nothing worse, but there's not nothing worse. But there is always an added pressure of 
the show after a ripper, the day after a ripper, when you start wanting to recreate that, you have to let it go. You have to be Buddhist. You have to practice non-attachment. You have to let that moment go, which of course is not being helped by the fact that I've been going on about that moment now for the last half an hour, but you have to let it go and get ready for a new theatrical experience tonight in Dundalk, where a new audience will have their own experience with the show, with a different venue, different acoustics, different dynamics, different people, different level of intoxication. Uh, But it was special last night. And I, I think if ever there was more evidence of the unique nature of that mixture of intoxication and the show and the atmosphere... Um, at the end of the night, a member of the audience in the front row, a kind of a, 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 a tattooed, sort of sturdy man. A man who you would look at and the first thought to come to your mind would not be, this man is in touch with his emotions. You know? I guess you would make some sort of uh, unfair judgment that he was the embodiment of toxic masculinity. You, know, you would look at him and assume that there is a... A, a fear of emotion in this tough-looking man. Well, that man, before the show ended, was the end of the show was a little emotional. As I was ending it, but not it was not over. I had not finished the show. He stepped onto the stage and said, "Des, can I can I give you a hug?" And he was broke down, crying in my arms on the stage. I just said that I I lost me ma as well, and I just I can't fuck. It was just he was just fucking sobbing, sobbing in my arms in front of this whole audience. At the end of my show, I hadn't finished yet. You know, just letting it out, the sadness of loss. And it was special, so I finished the show with him next to me, in my, you know, I I hugged him for a bit, and then I. I, I put my arm around him and uh, uh, I, I finished the show. With the, it was a little different to my normal finish. Uh, and it was, a, it was a great end to a specially chaotic but wonderful night in Clean. This man, hopefully he got some, some healing from it. I mean, I, I, I like it. People can just, if they can't control it, they need to let it out. You know, that's, that's part of it. You know, it's a, it's a journey most of us are going to experience this, this type of loss. You know, it's not some, it's not an indulgence, you know, it's not some, it's not, it's not some, you know, self-involved, you know, uh, uh, what was, what's what's the word? Like a, like a self-involved showing off, you know, art project, you know? I'm not, I'm not asking for much of a leap. I'm literally talking about a thing that we are all going to experience, or certainly the majority of us, unless we're very unlucky. We're all going to experience the loss of our parents. You know? It, it literally should be considered hack. It should be hack. You know? People call you a hack because you, you, you make a joke about a well-worn subject. How the fuck is joking about death not hack? This absolute fucking guarantee. It should be right up there in the top five difference between men and women having a kid, getting married, you know, dating, relationship humor, all these fucking things that every comic fucking jokes about. And you've heard it a million times, subject wise, not joke wise, but subject wise. You've heard it a million times. Fucking death should be right up there in the fucking hacksaw. Ah, another fucking joke about death. This thing that we're all going to experience loss, you know. It's it, it, it's not a vanity project, you know? But yes, because society's afraid to talk about death, the level of difficulty is higher. And the potential to bang your head is there. But luckily, that didn't happen last night. In fact, quite the opposite. Uh, no splash. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. No fucking splash. I was quite happy with that. So, I was uh, going to talk about power, but I feel quite—I feel quite distant from that now. Needless to say, I watched the Kanye documentary, and it was very upsetting. Uh, it was very upsetting, and uh, that's actually probably was the thing that triggered the conversation between myself and Bella about power. Uh, I guess it was a mixture of, of, of Kanye and, and Vladimir Putin. And, you know, obviously there's some sort of, that's some sort of pop comparison, some unnecessary bracketing of these two men together. But it just so happens that both of their potential mental declines uh, are causing suffering in our society, one more serious than the other, but both extremely problematic. And again, I'm, I'm not trying to compare the two. I'm just saying that they happen to be running simultaneously uh, on, on different networks of our gaze, social media gaze. Um, obviously, the Kanye thing is quite upsetting. I mean, I did make a little, a little joke about it on my Instagram, but in general... Uh, his abuse of Pete Davidson is is upsetting. Um, his, uh, you know, stalking, uh, and also, uh, despite her incredible fame, I mean, he he's he's abusing his ex. Really, you know, he's he's he he he's engaging in behavior that is unacceptable in society. Now, slowly bordering on illegal. Uh, you know, that level of intimidation. Um, I would hope, based on that inter uh, the, the music video that he did, that the end of just like the just kidding is like, is he just on the is he just on the safe side of of his indulgence in his own crazy thoughts, his own, I guess revenge fantasies is he just on the safe side or not i i, I that that's not clear uh, and so it, it is actually quite frightening i would imagine it's it's frightening for pete davidson you know pete has now experienced a, a level of fame that at times might put you outside your your the the sympathy zone you know that you go into that other place that place where you are commodity not human uh, but yeah, I, I know him a little bit, but I'm, I'm very friendly with, uh, one of his closer friends who I think actually might've been annoyed at, at my joke, which, which is understandable. Um, but, uh, it, not, not to the level I think that we would fall out, but you know, I, I, I say it was just upsetting for him to see that, uh, something that's so clearly, uh, serious, uh, you know, would be it would be turned into jokes by some people, but of course that would you know that we we are in the business of, of making jokes, and you know I would argue that uh, you know this is you know th th this is the same as so many things where some people say it's inappropriate to joke about that, and we're right back into the fucking realm of appropriateness, you know. So uh, you know it, that that part doesn't matter, but but what I'm saying is it 
it, it, it humanizes uh, somebody like Pete Davidson, which I, I didn't need him to be humanized because, you know, I know him a bit and he's, he's a very nice guy. And obviously, you know, I've seen just the normal guy. So that, that brings him right back into the circle of sympathy. It doesn't put him into that other place, you know, the, the commodity place. Um, but I think for some people, perhaps they, they, it, it can be easy for them to separate that, but it is, it, it, it's quite sinister. Uh, what Kanye is doing. And when you watch the Kanye documentary, you know, you can see that descent into paranoia. And I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that the, the, the diagnosis is bipolar, uh, but whatever it is, it's, it's, it's upsetting to watch, especially when the first two episodes are, are, are really sort of a journey into the celebration of his genius um, and, you know, and it, it, it's interesting because when I was looking into this power stuff, um, it, it, I was looking into hubris syndrome, which I have to say, I, I you know, I had originally thought we were going to do a little more of a, 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 an analysis, but, um, uh, I might. I, I have to say that I, I found the definition of hubris syndrome pretty interesting. Hubris syndrome is associated with power, more likely to manifest itself the longer the person exercises power and the greater the power they exercise. A syndrome not to be applied to anyone with existing mental illness or brain damage. Usually symptoms abate when the person no longer exercises power. Uh, it is less likely to develop in people who retain a personal modesty remain open to criticism, have a degree of cynicism, or a well-developed sense of humor. <laughs> Interesting enough. Um, and they give examples of uh, people that, uh, leaders who have had Huber syndrome, David Lloyd George, Margaret Thatcher, George W. Bush, and Tony Blair. Uh, which is interesting because, you know, when you look at the Huber syndrome, it, it seems in a way to be somewhat benevolent or so almost, uh, almost understandable in the sense that uh, power goes to your fucking head, basically. You know, you don't need a fancy word like Huber syndrome to know that, you know, things go into people's heads. It's been fucking said to you since you were old enough to fucking think you were the man for scoring a goal or something. But, um, but it got me thinking about, you know, this article in the Atlantic, which, you know, you should read because I, I, I looked it up, uh, when Bella had told me that there was a study about power actually causing brain damage and, you know, listen, just a quick synopsis is that there's been some studies about how basically the longer you're in power, the less you have empathy, the less you're able to connect with people. And often um, it, it takes away the, the very thing, the very skill that caused you to have power in the first place, you know, a sense of understanding people. Uh, uh, but there's just a very good article in, in the in the Atlantic from 2017, which, which you should read about studies that were done in the, essentially the mentally debilitating aspects of power. And it got me thinking about Kanye and Putin, to be honest. And this is, this is pop. This is fucking Dez's quick Google search stuff. But I wonder sometimes about, you know, you know, mental illness, you know, like, like, like I, I basically, this is a motivation for me to learn more about mental illness as in was Kanye always destined for this level of suffering or in fact was the damage that's caused by fame and in his instance, his inability to stay out of the comments and to just be sort of obsessed with people's criticisms of you, uh, to the point that uh, you you enter the paranoia zone, and then that level of power being surrounded by yes people, uh, the paranoia, the anxiety, the the hormonal injection that you can never escape from, is that actually just too debilitating, and has driven Kanye to this place, uh, and on a much more a disturbing level uh putin i did find it interesting if you um if you watch uh if you watch the kanye documentary uh the uh, a turning point is actually when his mother dies um and it, it you know it, it is interesting that people 
you know, there's just it's so many instances of, you know, people losing that, uh, losing the their their anchor. And in that article in the Atlantic, if you should read it, um, it talks about uh, you know power and hubris syndrome. It it talks about uh, things that stop people experiencing the um, debilitating effects of power or the brain damage of power. Things that perhaps can keep you grounded. And there was a story about uh, Pepsi CEO and chairman Indra Nooyi tells the story of the day she got the news of her appointment to the company's board in 2001. She arrived home, percolating in her own sense of important and vitality, importance and vitality, when her mother asked whether, before she delivered her great news, she could go out and get some, mu- some milk. Fuming, Nui went out and got it. Leave that damn crown in the garage was her mother's advice when she returned. Now, some people might say that she was raining on her parade, but some might also say that that level of grounding is essential when given so much power. Because as Kanye said, no one man should have all that power. And if you don't have somebody to keep that power in check, it will destroy you. And in the case of Putin, it will destroy society. And in the case of Kanye, might lead you on a road to such mental illness that you will not only destroy your own career and your own life, but you will begin to destroy the lives of others and potentially end up doing something illegal. That That's dark. And I am not dismissing the mental illness part of Kanye, and I'm not trying to suggest in any way that like something specific is causing Kanye's mental illness, but it's pretty hard not to notice that his mental decline was accelerated when he lost the anchor of his mother. Because there's literally a scene in there where she says that you gotta fucking stay grounded you know she says the giant doesn't see himself in the mirror you know she knew even back then that he had a potential for the hubris to to take over and begin to destroy him you know and i just think it's interesting when you look at the stories of putin now in 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 the type of isolation that he's in Uh, A lot of people making these assumptions that the pandemic perhaps accelerated it, but he now is, you know, in a potentially bringing on the end of the world level of narcissistic isolation. And it's, it's pretty disturbing to think that if indeed the amount of power that he has had over the last 20 years causes brain damage that that brain damage may be the thing that ends us it's upsetting it's also worrying that power is the problem because after last week's uh episode i did get a lot of messages from women being like i wonder what it'd be like if women ruled the world and uh, listen i'm i'm more than happy uh, to assume that there might be less war, you know? But I can't help but think that power is the problem and uh, men have just had power for too long, but that it would be the great disappointment perhaps in future when we find out that it's been power all along. And once you have it, the inability to let it go uh, is really the, the biggest issue of all. Uh, which is why you have to say that America, for all its flaws, the fact that they brought in term limits to presidents and, you know, just had a sense of, you know, why it's important to limit power. Because uh, unfortunately, unlimited power is just causing problems uh, all over the world. Uh, and I mean, that's really it. I honestly, I had a, I had a lot more stuff prepared but i've been talking for so long um i had found so many great quotes uh you know um huber syndrome a disorder of the possession of power particularly power which has been associated with overwhelming success held for a period of years and with minimal constraint on the leader very interesting 
I saw I, there were just so many cool quotes. Um, um, I also, to be honest, this this is sort of separate, but I found an article about Putin from 2013, and it, it, it's funny uh, that it, it, just all this like assumption that people make that turned out to be wrong, and this goes for this goes for Russia and China. Uh, I, I'll just read this article from a, a Brookings Institute article from 2013. Putin is trapped in a dilemma that will persist throughout his current presidency. His long-term goal is to rebuild and restore Russia. To succeed, he needs human capital, including members of what is often called the creative class, many of whom, whom have joined the opposition. But he does not understand this new urban middle class, and he lacks the ability to connect with its members. His base of support comes from Russia's silent majority of industrial workers, public sector employees, pensioners, and rural residents, all of whom are heavily dependent on state subsidies. As such, Putin remains distrustful of the very people he needs to power Russia's revival. But the whole thing is, at that stage, doesn't understand, or how could they know that Putin is going to completely ignore that opposition? And he's going to, you know, ignore... I even saw Fintan O'Toole, I think, wrote in an article that... Um, they, they, back in like Thomas Friedman had said that no country that has embraced McDonald's uh, goes to war. You know, this sense that, uh, and I, I used to see other reports that uh, once a society percentage of, once a percentage of society's middle class is greater than whatever percent, I can't remember, but there, there was like uh, apparently this, 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 this red line, once a society's middle class grows to a certain amount authoritarian governments don't survive. Korea was one of the examples. Mexico was one of the examples. Um, that, that that middle class eventually doesn't accept authoritarianism. And there was this kind of optimism that China was heading that way. But we've, that, that, that is gone. That, that period of human evolution has ended. Because actually what has happened is that growing middle class in China... Uh, understood that the power was still too great within the communist party so you just have to get in line to continue your affluence you know that the affluence will actually be destroyed by rising up against the state and in putin's case he just straight up went further into authoritarianism and is now completely disregarding his opposition to the point where he has media censorship, which was, you know, literally the things we studied in the 80s in, in primary school in the United States about the fact that there's, you know, uh, no free press, society is censored, and people live in fear of any criticism of the state. I mean, that has returned. So it's funny to see all that sort of optimism 2013, just the, uh, this was the end of the article. Domestic dissent and Putin's efforts to counter it will be a permanent feature of his current presidential term. Paradoxically, the more progress he makes towards modernizing Russia, the more people will demand greater political openness and ultimately Putin's removal from power. The rise of Russia's middle class then will continue to pit Putin against himself in the years ahead. Well, your fucking analysis met its fucking match with Putin's mental illness. Um, another quote that I had found, uh, Maslow, you know, Maslow from the hierarchy of needs fame notes that in the hands of the immature, vicious, or emotionally sick, power is a horrible danger. Well, we fucking learned that time and time again. Um, Anyway, I think we've had enough for today. Early on, I I have to say, I I really thought I was going to have a, an episode that was more in line with the kind of a comedic but serious comparison between Kanye and Putin, but uh, that didn't really happen. Um, but it wasn't necessary because we went on another journey. Um. And uh, you can take from that journey what you want. Uh, needless to say, uh, thanks so much for being here for another episode. Um, I really can't uh, stress enough how important it is to spread the word. Uh, and that is my fault. This is me asking you for a favor. 
because in a situation where you have just been so inconsistent over the years, I mean, I, th- I think we're looking at six or even seven years uh, since I started this podcast in its various forms, but obviously with huge gaps. Like I, I think at most 60% of the time I've actually been doing apps, potentially less. Uh, so w- hands up, guilty. It was my fault. But as a result of that, I'm asking you for a favor of just, you know, taking a sec to put it up on Instagram or Twitter uh, that the Des Bishop podcast is back. And it's, uh, you know, if you enjoy it, tell people that you really enjoy it these days. Uh, you like the stream of consciousness, uh, the subject matter, um, my voice, whatever it is about the podcast that you like. Please spread the word. Um I'm in Dundalk tonight. Uh, next week, I have Westport, Navin, Clonmel. Uh, uh, and then the week after that, I have uh, Roscommon on Patrick's Day, Vicar Street, March 18th. And uh, on the 19th, oh, the 19th, I'm in Limerick. Uh, those are big shows, actually. Uh, Vicar Street's about to sell out. Uh, but don't worry if you can't get Dublin t- if you can't get Vic Street tickets. I'm doing uh, Tala, Blanchardstown, uh, Dunleary, Bray, which you know I know is not in Dublin, but it's in the hinterland. So there's plenty of other venues if you can't uh, get to Vicar Street. Although I have to say, after last night, I I, I never wanted to do this show on Vicar Street. I was supposed to be in the Project Arts Center, but with the pandemic postponements, we ended up not being able to do it there at this time. Um which was disappointing to me because I want to do a long run in a small venue to, I guess, get that word of mouth, you know, give people a chance, people a chance that perhaps wouldn't have thought the show was for them to get the word of mouth. Oh yeah, actually it's, it's something else. It's something special or, you know, I just wanted a a chance for that to grow. And I also wanted a chance for perhaps people that might not be inclined to think that my stuff was for them to find out that that something different was going on. Uh, But in the end, we put this show on in Vicar Street, the third venue, third Dublin venue. You know, like these, these Dublin dates have been affected a lot by postponements. Uh, but after last night, my fears about the fact that Vicar Street can sometimes be a little rowdy, uh, that there's always a lot of people walking around, going to the loo and stuff. You know, Vicar Street's always just like a busy venue, like during the show, um, which is fine for comedy normally. But in this case, I was a little worried. But now I think that actually it's probably ideal that the rowdiness might be my friend. So um, that's about to sell out. But there, there's like a few tickets. There's some standing tickets left and a few random seats. But uh, if you can't get that, go to Tala. Tala's always good. And uh, or Blanche. Blanche is always great. Um, and Dunleary also. Uh, I've done numerous shows in Dunleary already, but we have a few, a couple more. Um and Bray, I've done once before, but we're doing another one. Bray, Bray was very early on. I actually made a couple of mistakes that night. I, Bray deserves a better performance than than that early show, January 2020, fucking hell. So anyway, come check out the show, desbishop.net forward slash tour dates. Um, leave reviews, Apple Podcasts, screenshots of Spotify, um, and... Hit me up with messages. I love when people engage, particularly, you know, Instagram DMs, probably the best place to get me. Uh, I do see them. So uh, DM me on Instagram at DesBishop, DesBishop5 on TikTok. I'm doing uh, more videos there lately too. Uh, so uh, check that out. Facebook.com forward slash DesBishop. I'm over there too. I mean, you can message me on Facebook, but I, I'm not, I don't see it as much. Facebook's just so complicated these days. It's fucking, it's just everything about it. It's like, it's it's just it's just it's just less direct. I mean, I'm doing a lot of promo for the show on Facebook, but I, I just like I don't know. I just can't I can't figure out Facebook. And for some reason, I don't know. My Facebook algorithm thinks that I'm really into '80s wrestling. I'm just getting like a lot of '80s wrestling videos coming up on my my feed. My my, my Facebook feed is is weird. So um, so anyway, uh, that's that's a lot of that's a lot of unnecessary info inf, info info. At the end of the podcast, uh, do watch the Kanye doc. Uh, if you haven't already, it's pretty fascinating. See, episode three is a little tough, though, but uh, check that out. And um, I'm on the 6 o'clock show on Monday. If you're looking for some some entertainment, TV3. And 
I actually I'm I'm doing another cool podcast on Tuesday, but I'm not going to say what it is just in case. I don't know if those guys like to like keep their guests, you know, private until they announce it. So I'm doing one of these younger podcasts, the up and coming Irish podcasts that are taking off, which is great. You know, it's very exciting to see what's happening with all these, uh, you know, uh, young podcasts and their new followings and stuff. It's cool. So I'm doing one of those. And uh, yeah, that's it, guys. Uh, we'll see you next week. Yeah. I really, I'll, I'll get a guest. I'll get Steve. Steve had COVID this week. So that happened. And um, any other news here? We'll talk about it next week. Hopefully the world is making it like a little calmer uh, next week. Because I've just about had enough of the fucking mayhem. But we'll see what happens. All right. Great, Great guys. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Wonderful to have you on the podcast. Next week, we'll be talking about planning permission in the South Dublin area. Should your neighbor's gate allowed to be higher, be allowed to be higher than eight feet? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I just know. I'm just thinking of podcasts that would like be very popular in Monkstown, County Dublin. Huh? What hedges are acceptable to use in your neighbor's front garden. Personally, I find the popularity of bay leaf hedges to be slightly worrying because the temptation to use those bay leaves in soup uh, is dangerous because you don't know how many dogs have been peeing on your hedge. Uh, okay. I've really gone way too far. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for listening to the Monkstown Podcast. We'll talk to you next week when we talk about blueberries. Organic or not. See you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.